When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised this podcast episode contains the names of people who have died. This episode also contains graphic descriptions of violence and the quoted reference to a racist insult. Listener discretion is advised. Just before we begin, a few notes. Firstly, I'd planned this episode as a two-parter, but since releasing part one, I found a lot more material, so I'll be finishing this story across two installments in order to do it justice, and part three will be released tomorrow. Also, in part one, I accidentally transposed the names of two O'Keefe family members. The mother was Margaret, the daughter was Mary, rather than the other way around, and I've corrected that in part one. Finally, in part one of this episode, we heard how Jimmy Governor and Jack Underwood's massacre of the Morby family resulted from Mrs. Morby insulting Jimmy's wife. Listener Ashley Cox, who is a Morby descendant, wrote to me to say, quote, Thank you for telling the story of the Breelong Massacre as accurately as is possible. However, it's known in the family that Mr. Morby ripped off Jimmy money-wise over some fence posts he had cut. Mr. Morby didn't want to pay full price, then it snowballed from there with the rest of the things happening. Many thanks to Ashley Cox for sharing that Morby family insight. Alright, on with part two of the Deadwood Dick Murders. It's about 10 on the night of Sunday the 15th of July 1906. At the O'Keefe farmhouse on German Creek on the New South Wales north coast, young Jack Brown has just hit Tim O'Keefe, the son of his former employer, in the head with an axe. But rather than split his skull in two, the axe only grazes Tim's head. He's dazed with a scalp wound but able to grapple with Jack and grab the weapon. Reeling from being hit, Tim slumps against the sulky he was putting into the shed when he was attacked. 
Having lost the element of surprise and his weapon, Jack Brown runs off into the night. Tim staggers up and gives chase for a dozen or so yards, shouting, If I catch you, I'll do for you. But, unsteady on his feet, Tim reels into a peach tree and bumps into the harness room. Jack Brown is gone in the dark. Tim calls out to Paddy Gillick for help, but the O'Keefe's live-in worker doesn't respond, and Paddy's not in his hut near the farmhouse. Tim's sister Mary meets him at the door. She asks what's happened, thinking that a horse has kicked him. Tim stumbles in, tells her that Jack Brown has hit him with an axe and not to make any noise because he doesn't want to alarm their elderly parents. Mary strikes a match and sees the blood on her brother's head. The old people, as the brother and sister call their parents, have to be told about this. But when Mary goes to their room, they're nowhere to be found and they're not anywhere else in the house either. Tim and Mary's hope is that their parents and Paddy Gillick are just visiting a neighbouring farm. Though woozy from the axe wound that's bruised his brain, Tim tries to calm his sister. He says they'll sit up, stay on guard and just wait for their parents and Paddy to come back. Tim and Mary huddle by a lantern as the hours pass by anxiously. Beyond the glow of their lamp, there's only darkness and Jack Brown. What's gotten into the boy? What has he done? And... What is he going to do? I'm Michael Adams, and this is the second instalment of the three-part episode, The Deadwood Dick Murders. John Raymond Brown, known as Jack Brown, was born in Port Adelaide, South Australia, on the 21st of December, 1887. When he was still very young, his family moved to Broken Hill in western New South Wales. Jack had an unhappy childhood. His mother died, then his father. One of his sisters got married and moved away, and the other one went into the convent. As for the boy, he was taken away by the police and sent to Sydney. As a state boy, he was fostered out, first to a family at Dremoyne and then to another home at Rookwood. Neither of these arrangements worked out, and we can only guess what life was like for young Jack Brown. In April 1901, three months after Federation, Jack, now aged 13, was apprenticed to Daniel and Margaret O'Keefe of German Creek near the Richmond River up in northern New South Wales. Daniel O'Keefe was old even then. He'd been born in Ireland around 1830. Margaret was some 14 years his junior. They'd been pioneers in the area, having lived there for more than 30 years. The O'Keefe's were highly respected, kindly people who'd built up their farm while raising six children. Around the turn of the century, their German Creek property comprised 170 acres. They ran a dozen dairy cattle and had a little orchard, but the main source of their income was the 25 acres they had under sugarcane. The O'Keefe's children had grown up respectable. One son was with the Newcastle police, two others were blacksmiths in Sydney, and a daughter had married a road maintenance man and lived farther north in Bangalore. Their youngest, Tim and Mary, still lived on the farm. While Daniel and Margaret O'Keefe had six children, they thought of another boy as being like a son to them, and that was Jack Brown. Under Mrs O'Keefe's guidance, Jack received religious instruction at the Catholic Church at Wardell, and despite his stutter, he did well in the catechism. Jack, who'd grow to stand 5'4", had dark hair, large brown eyes, and a freckled complexion so that even as he became an adult, he still looked boyish. He was solidly built though and a good worker, set him any task and he'd do it. 
Despite Jack's admirable qualities, his early upbringing had left him with a dark streak. He had a diabolically quick temper and he'd resort to foul language and nasty threats when angry. In March 1904, Jack broke the O'Keefe's trust in a serious way when he stole a revolver and 26 shillings from Daniel's lockbox. The O'Keefe's had him arrested and at Ballina Court he was sentenced to six months in a reformatory for boys in Western Sydney. Jack was only there five days before he escaped. Three months later, he'd made his way back to German Creek and he begged the O'Keefe's to give him another chance. Like the prodigal son, he was welcomed home. One person who wouldn't be happy that Jack Brown had come back was the O'Keefe's other worker, Paddy Gillick. Born around 1850, Paddy had worked for the O'Keefe's for a long time. That was until July 1900, just after Jack Brown had first arrived, when Paddy won £450 in the Tattersall sweeps. With this money behind him, he headed to Sydney to take over the Green Tree Hotel in Piermont. Paddy eventually went bust, and he returned to German Creek to work for the O'Keefe's again in the middle of 1905. Whatever he'd thought of Jack Brown five years earlier, they now didn't get on, and they came to blows on numerous occasions. The last such incident, around May 1906, saw Paddy hit Jack Brown and the boy then stalk off to grab a revolver so he could shoot his nemesis. On this occasion, Tim O'Keefe interceded and convinced Jack to put the weapon down. About 10 days later, Jack Brown left the O'Keefe's employment for good. After that, Jack boarded with Mrs Redford at her Ballina Coffee Palace restaurant and worked for her doing odd jobs. The ever-forgiving Margaret O'Keefe would call in there to check that Jack was all right. She'd say to Mrs Redford, My poor boy Jack is a better lad than many who have parents. At this stage, the boy was also living on and off in a hut on a selection near Ballina that was held by a young farmer named Herbert Powell. Herbert was a member of the local Scottish Rifles Battalion and he kept his uniform and his bayonet in the hut. Towards the end of the second week of July, Jack Brown arranged with a local photographer to have his studio portrait taken wearing this uniform. Not that he told Herbert this. On the appointed day, Sunday the 15th of July, Jack went to the hut and got dressed in the Scottish Rifles uniform and took the bayonet. But instead of going to the studio to have his picture taken, he headed to the O'Keefe's farmhouse at German Creek, seen by several witnesses in the late afternoon wearing this military attire. When Monday morning dawned, Tim and Mary O'Keefe had made it through the night. With the sun coming up, surely Jack Brown was long gone, and their parents would come back from wherever they'd been. Axe in hand, just to be sure, Tim went out the front door to have a look around. Seeing nothing out of the ordinary in this part of the property, he circled back to the kitchen and dining room, which were attached to the rear of the farmhouse via a landing. There, he was joined by Mary, and what they saw in the morning light was shocking beyond belief. The kitchen and the dining room were both splashed with blood. There was broken glass, crockery, and a spray of sand on the dining room floor. Most ominously, two distinct bloody drag marks led out into the yard. Tim made for Paddy's hut first, and now, in the daylight, he saw there was a big pool of blood just outside the door. Then, Mary screamed. She screamed again. Oh, Tim, he's killed them. Mary had found their mother. Margaret O'Keefe was dead in the chicken coop and covered in blood. She'd been stabbed repeatedly. 
Following a bloody trail another 20 yards to the orchard, Tim found the bodies of his father and Paddy Gillick. Both were covered in blood, stabbed, slashed, battered and mutilated. Their faces were wrapped in blankets and corn sacks had been put over their heads. There was a rope around Daniel O'Keefe's neck which had been used to unceremoniously drag him to the orchard. It's difficult to comprehend how horrified Tim and Mary must have been. Not only because it was obvious that Jack Brown had committed these bloody murders, but also because he'd meant to kill them too. Mary's screams had been heard by neighbours, and they stayed with her while Tim rode a horse to Wardell to get Constable Thomas Brown. This policeman used the telephone to call two fellow officers in Ballina, and they all headed for the farmhouse. Another constable went out to the hut on Powell's selection, but Jack Brown wasn't there. The murder investigation and manhunt would be led by Sub-Inspector John Evans of Lismore and Sergeant Edward Reed of Ballina. That morning, many German Creek neighbours helped the police by searching the O'Keefe's property for clues. One neighbour found the blood-stained Scottish Rifles uniform in the dairy, while another found a bloody brush hook not far from the house. A blood-stained hammer was also found, and two one-pound notes were recovered on a track near the Richmond River. Inspecting the kitchen and dining room, police believed that Daniel and Margaret had been attacked there and from the broken bottle and shattered crockery on the floor, they'd put up a struggle before being killed. A neighbour told police that Paddy Gillick had been at his house until about 9 o'clock the previous night and it would have taken him about half an hour to 45 minutes to get back to his hut near the farmhouse. Police believed he'd been ambushed, put up a brief fight and then been stabbed to death but the brutality had continued after he died. As the Sydney Morning Herald would put it, quote, Paul Gillick's body is gashed with about a dozen awful wounds. Most of these would have been fatal alone, and there is no doubt that he was hacked about for a long time after he was dead. The terrible bayonet thrusts already referred to appear to have been inflicted in a spirit of flashness when the killing was finished. Then Jack Brown had lain in wait for Tim and Mary to return from church. If not for luck, Tim would have been the fourth to die. Mary's fate would almost certainly have been the same, and newspapers speculated she would have been outraged before being killed. Jack Brown had murdered a couple who'd been like his own mother and father. Why? Robbery appeared to be a motive. Daniel and Patty's pockets had been turned inside out, but Jack had failed to find £16 hidden in the farmhouse. Robbery also didn't explain the incredible brutality of the crimes. And there was another question. Why had Jack Brown taken the O'Keefe's dog with him when he'd fled? From 9 o'clock on Monday morning, the manhunt was on. This part of northern New South Wales was relatively thickly populated thanks to the rich farmland and numerous small towns. The district also had a pretty good telephone service and from Ballina Post Office it was possible to call all the towns along the Richmond River. So that morning the telephone lines blazed with Jack Brown's description and the description of the O'Keefe's woolly dog thought to be his travelling companion. Anyone who saw them was to call the police immediately. But police were already hot on Jack's trail. A small boat had been found adrift on the Richmond River and tracks had been discovered on a bit of muddy shore on Pimlico Island. Police and locals concentrated their search efforts on this island, which comprised about 300 acres of thick bush. 
They searched all afternoon and into the night, but found no further trace of Jack Brown. Late that night, the postmaster at Wardell got a phone message from Tinton Bar, about 15 miles farther north. Jack Brown had been spotted there. The Wardell postmaster sent men on horses to find Sub-Inspector Evans and Sergeant Reed at Pimlico Island. Getting to shore, these officers immediately rode for Tinton Bar. There, overnight, they interviewed the witness and knocked on several other doors in the town. The police didn't wake up many people. That's because they were already awake, on guard, weapons to hand, should the desperados seek shelter on their properties. News of the German Creek tragedy had been telegraphed to the capital cities and it made a few of that day's afternoon newspapers. The following morning, it was huge news all over the country. Here's the Sydney Morning Herald headline from Tuesday the 17th of July. A shocking tragedy, outrage near Ballina, three persons murdered, a cold-blooded deed, alleged criminal, a youth, perpetrator still at large. The article didn't stint on detail or opinion, quote, For callous brutality and continuity of purpose, this crime has few equals. The murderer never wavered in the course of his hideous work. He carried it through in a needlessly savage style. From the moment when he first bore down on his victims to his inhuman hacking about of their bodies, it appears the crime of one who reveled in his butchery and who increased his desire and strength as he drew additional blood. There have been murderers who shot and then, to make doubly sure, applied the knife. But few have carried as many weapons to their killing as the slayer of this harmless old farmer and his wife and their employee friend, Gillick. They have been battered and slashed with the back and the blade of an axe and a tomahawk, pounded with a hammer, stabbed repeatedly with a bayonet, and slashed with a brushhook point. Apparently, he took their lives deliberately, changed from weapon to weapon as he effected his murders, just as a butcher uses his various knives and choppers in the cutting up of a beast. As city dwellers were reading this and other newspaper reports on their trams to work, the northern New South Wales manhunt was continuing. On Tuesday morning, there were three or four sightings of the fugitive, and in each case, the witness reported seeing a young, thick-set fellow with a dark complexion who was wearing a peaked cap and accompanied by a woolly dog. Police went to see a farmer who said a man answering Jack's description had called at his house. This farmer said he'd actually offered the boy a job as a cook for his workers, but Jack had turned him down because he was afraid he might poison someone. Police believe their quarry was trying to get to Byron Bay and board a steamer north for Queensland. So they took a train to head him off, but there was no sign of Jack Brown in Byron Bay and the police doubled back towards Bangalore. That Tuesday afternoon, Daniel and Margaret O'Keefe and Paddy Gillick were buried at Wardell in a funeral attended by 500 mourners. At this time, the Sydney Morning Herald's special reporter on the spot was filing a story that would appear in the next day's edition. It was a hugely detailed account, information from which has been used to make this episode, and it also included this paragraph under the subheading, Stimulating Reading. Quote, Until a couple of years ago, Brown had a decided bent for religion. He attended the Roman Catholic Church at Wardell and was there confirmed. At his catechism, he excelled and, on one occasion, he received a prize for his mastery. Since then, however, his literary tastes have slumped. He turned to tales of the Deadwood Dick and bushranging type 
and soaked himself with this sensationalism until he almost lost his nerve and is said to have feared to sleep without a loaded revolver. From this exciting source too, he acquired ideas of bushranging and buccaneering and is said to have more than once interested his companions in imaginative raids and flights to Pimlico Island, which he thought could be easily held by picking off an invading force with a rifle as it crossed towards his stronghold on the water. The Deadwood Dick blame game had already begun. On the other side of the country, in Perth, that same day, a correspondent penned a letter to the West Australian newspaper that inadvertently brought together two issues that would feature heavily in the Jack Brown case. Quote, Sir, cannot something be done by the Federal Parliament to prevent the importation of the Deadwood Dick class of literature into the Commonwealth? The harm this garbage is doing is incalculable. I consider this question is far more important than a number of other matters that are engaging the attention of our legislators. We talk loftily of a white Australia, but of what use is a white skin if the possessors are to be encouraged in poisoning their minds? The recent murders stand as terrible examples of the harm done by the spreading broadcast of the above trash among young or weak intellects. At around 2 o'clock that Tuesday afternoon in northern New South Wales, the postmistress at Burring Bar, some 20 miles past Byron Bay, saw the boy and the dog heading towards Mulwollumbar. In plain clothes, Sergeant Bernard Kane struck out south from Mulwollumbar Station for the little town of Dunbible. This was just 20 miles from the Queensland border. At 2pm, Sergeant Kane took up a position where he could see the road and the railway line. It was about half an hour before he saw Jack Brown trudging along with his swag and with the O'Keefe's dog by his side. What was incredible was that this boy had, in 40 hours, covered some 85 miles, much of it through fields and scrub adjacent to roads and tracks. But for that phone call from the postmistress, Jack Brown would probably have been in Queensland by midnight. Now, as Sergeant Kane watched, Jack Brown crossed the railway creek and headed for a cutting. The officer got on his horse and cantered after the boy. Jack was surprised by this man and beast, but he wasn't alarmed as he didn't see a uniform. Sergeant Kane said, Hello, what's your name? The boy responded promptly, Dowling. The officer asked, Where from? Almurra. Sergeant Kane said, Your face is a bit scratched. Jack replied, I got those back there in the scrub. The officer mused, That's strange. They don't look like scrub scratches. That was when Jack's nerve broke and he dropped his swag and reached towards it. Before he could pull out his bayonet, Sergeant Kane grabbed him. The boy slumped and uttered a string of curses. Then he said, quote, Don't knock me about. Let go. I'll surrender quietly. The game is up. The bayonet I did it with is in the swag. I will make a clean breast of it. Also in the swag was some damper that Jack had baked at a camp where he'd bought boots and a blanket. He also had just over a pound in coins that he said he'd stolen from the O'Keefe's. According to Sergeant Kane, he cautioned Jack, but the kid freely confessed as he took him back to Mulwollumbar. Jack said, quote, I went over to the O'Keefe's on Sunday, but not with the intention of murdering them. What I wanted was money and arms. I had taken Fred Powell's uniform and bayonet with me, and also a sandbag filled with sand and stones. I hit the old woman with the bag, but it broke. Then I drew my bayonet. Mrs. O'Keefe screamed for help and the old man came to her assistance. I stabbed him with the bayonet again and again. Then Gillett came out and I was hit with a bottle. I then went for them with the bayonet right and left. I suppose that I will be hung for it. 
Though this would prove a slightly muddled account, the basics were sound. It was a robbery gone wrong then, like Thomas Quinlan when he'd killed Mrs Mercy Gregory at the Royal Hotel in Sydney back in February. Yet, this explanation didn't entirely make sense. If Jack Brown had wanted guns, then where were they? The O'Keefe's bloodstained rifle had been found beneath a sofa in the dining room. And why hadn't he searched harder for that £16 and been careless enough to drop two £1 notes on his way to the river? The most obvious question, though, was why had he acted with such brutality? A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Sergeant Kane took Jack Brown to Mwollomba and locked him up for the night. Guarded by Sub-Inspector Evans and Sergeant Reed, Jack was taken by coach to Ballina the next day, with crowds lining the route and awaiting his arrival. The mood was angry. At 2pm, he was before the court to be charged with three murders. The Sydney Morning Herald described him, quote, He is, in fact, a mere slip of a boy, with all the manners of a boy. He does not even look his 18 or 19 years. Surveying him as he stood in court, limp, dejected, with his childhood just behind him, one would never pick him as a self-confessed murderer of the most brutal, heartless kind. The same day Jack appeared in court, the Sydney Mail published an article headlined, Deadwood Dick Crime. It began, The horrible triple murder on the Richmond, and evidently only failure of an axe stroke prevented there being five victims instead of three, has apparently to be added to the already long list of crimes inspired by what is called Deadwood Dick literature. The supposed murderer is a youth, said to be given to the perusal of that trashy literature of criminal adventures which has seared so many young minds. Even as Sydney male readers were absorbing this, Jack was giving an interview from his police cell to local newspaper The Clarence and Richmond Examiner, which would be reprinted widely. What he told them in this version mostly aligned with what he'd already said in a statement made to Sub-Inspector Evans and to Sergeant Kane. I've combined the newspaper and police accounts to best convey what Jack Brown actually claimed were his motives and influences. He told the examiner journalist, quote, The whole thing is the result of a secret society formed here to keep up a white Australia. Our plan was to have a revolution against the blacks and Chinese and to kill them off. Jack said in his police statement that the secret society had been formed in Ballina. It was called the Anti-Black Labour Society and it had 28 members. He told the examiner, quote, There are a number of us in the society, but we have kept it very quiet until we have got some money to buy arms. We have had some drills and also practice at bayonet work. We used to try our hands on pumpkins with the bayonet, stabbing them and slicing them up. Jack named two or three local boys he said were part of the secret society, but their identities weren't revealed in the newspaper reports. As for the O'Keefe's, Jack said, quote, I never thought of killing them. They were my best friends. They were always kind to me and treated me like one of the family. Mrs. O'Keefe seemed very fond of me, and so I was of her. It never entered my head to murder them, but our revolution society wanted arms, and so I went up to O'Keefe's on Sunday night. 
As for his white Australia beliefs, Jack said he'd come to the cause via very popular publications sold all over Australia. They weren't Deadwood Dick novels. They were The Bulletin magazine and Truth newspaper. Both of these had national reach and were then read by hundreds of thousands of people every week. In the lead-up to Federation and the 1901 legislation that came after to officially establish the White Australia policy, the Bulletin and Truth were vocal supporters of racist policies being enshrined in law. For the past 20 years, the Bulletin had worn its philosophy proudly on every cover just below the masthead, with the slogan, Australia for the White Man. Meanwhile, Truth's owner, John Norton, penned so many White Australia editorials that his biographer, Michael Cannon, devoted an entire chapter to them in his 1981 book, That Damned Democrat. These two publications were among the loudest media voices supporting the White Australia policy, but they were only echoing what our first and second Prime Ministers, Edmund Barton and Alfred Deakin, had made their mission and it was a mission that was enthusiastically endorsed by most politicians and the majority of Australia's population. Yet, this embrace of the White Australia policy had turned the sugarcane growing regions of Queensland and northern New South Wales into a popular economic and ideological flashpoint. That's because from the start, the sugar industry had been built on the labour of an imported black population. Some 63,000 South Sea Islander people had been brought to Australia from 1863 right through to 1904. That was after the establishment of the White Australia policy via several pieces of racist legislation. Many of these South Sea Islander people had been kidnapped and brought to Australia, while others were duped with deceptive employment offers. Blackbirding, as it was known, was indentured labour, that is, slavery. After Federation, there was huge pressure on federal politicians to fulfil their white Australia policies by putting into practice the mass deportation of these people as set out in the Pacific Island Labourers Act of 1901. Then sugarcane cutting could be done by whites, even though their labour was far more expensive. Mass deportations of South Sea Islander people began in 1904 and accelerated from there because a provision in the Act said, with only a few exemptions, none could remain in Australia after the 31st of December 1906. According to an 1895 census, there were about 300 South Sea Islander people living and working in the Richmond Tweed area. Additionally, there were several hundred Chinese and Indian workers also in the district. As an example of the attitudes prevalent at the time, here's what a reporter for the Gundagai Times wrote on the 24th of April 1906 about his visit to the Northern Rivers. Quote, Feeling runs high up north as to the wisdom of allowing coloured labour in either the sugar or dairying industries. The districts are infested with Hindus, Kanakas and other of the inferior races, but apparently the black man will have to go. He is due to be deported from the rivers this year. Sentimentally, the opponents of coloured labour do not object so much to the Kanaka as to the Hindu, who appears to be loathed on all sides. Here's the Richmond River Express and Casino Kyogle advertiser approvingly reprinting an article from Toowoomba's Chronicle newspaper. Quote, The White Australia policy is asserting itself and is proving a splendid thing for democracy. The writer was talking about the mass deportations. He went on to describe how 100 white workers had been employed up north. 
But this wouldn't have happened if Free Trade Party opposition leader George Reid was in power rather than Prime Minister Alfred Deakin. Quote, We should still have the Kanaka and the white man would be starved and sleeping in the domains. Which is the humanist policy? We have nothing against the Solomon Islander, but prefer to have him eating breakfast and bananas in his own atoll. It is Deakin and democracy versus Reid and reaction. December must decide. December was when the next federal election was to be held. Clearly, this writer felt that the white Australia policy needed defending. The date of this article? Friday the 13th of July, 1906, just two days before the German Creek murders. Of course, these weren't isolated articles. Enthusiasm for the white Australia policy, along with vile abuse directed at non-whites, up to and including suggesting they be exterminated like pests, could be found regularly in Northern Rivers newspapers and in publications Australia-wide. So, it was in this climate that young Jack Brown claimed he wanted to do his bit for white Australia. As for his own experience of South Sea Islanders, we don't know for sure, nor do we know for sure if the O'Keeffe's profited from such labour. However, it's highly likely because this labour had been used for decades on sugarcane farms in the region. Further, that Jack Brown claimed his secret society was called the Anti-Black Labour Society suggests he'd been working on a property that used such workers. And if, as seems very possible, he left the employment of the O'Keeffe's under a cloud while South Sea Islander men continued to work for them, his racist grievances would have only been intensified. This is speculative, but it does fit the reality or the fantasy of his White Australia secret society claims. To the police, Jack claimed his plan was to use a sandbag to knock out and capture the O'Keeffe's. What he was going to do with his captives wasn't made clear but he said he was going to rob them and use the proceeds to arm soldiers of the White Australia Revolution. Jack Brown arrived at the O'Keeffe's farm late on Sunday afternoon and spent several hours skulking around the place trying to work up the courage to go through with his plan. At around 8.30 that night, he presented himself at the back door to the kitchen where Daniel and Margaret were sitting by the fire. In his account to the Clarence and Richmond Examiner, Jack said, quote, the old people were very glad to see me and I went inside. The sand was in a flower bag and I thought if I gave them a hit on the head with it, they would be stunned. That was all I wanted to do, so that I could get away with the money. Well, I struck the old lady on the head, but the sandbag was no good and broke. She screamed, then the old man rushed in and I took to the bayonet. While we were fighting, Gillick ran up and I went for him too. As soon as I knew what I had done, I was terribly afraid, and after Tim O'Keefe and his sister went inside, I ran for the river. This didn't align with what he'd told the police, and what would be tendered in court. In his statement, Jack told them he'd called to the O'Keefe's, quote, Surrender in the name of the Australian Revolution. Surprised and bewildered, Margaret O'Keefe had called her husband. Jack had hit her with a sandbag, which split, and then he'd stabbed her with the bayonet as she smashed him on the head with a bottle that was to hand. Daniel came to his wife's aid, and Jack stabbed him in the side. Daniel tried to hit him with a rifle, and Jack deflected the blow. Then, Jack went wild with the bayonet, slashing the old man and running Mrs. O'Keefe right the way through. Jack told the police he didn't care what he did after that because this was war and everything was fair in war. 
When his murderous frenzy had subsided momentarily, Jack dragged Margaret's body out to the fowl house. Seeing how much blood that had left, Jack wrapped Daniel's face in a towel and put a corn sack over his head and then tied a rope around his neck to haul him out to the orchard. A government medical officer who examined the bodies would testify that Daniel O'Keefe had probably still been alive and that he'd been suffocated by the towel and the corn sack. Jack Brown told police he'd taken some of the O'Keefe's money and strutted about the place fretting because his plan hadn't worked. Then the O'Keefe's dog came running into him and he realised that meant that Paddy Gillick was returning. Jack went outside and challenged him with a brush hook, told him to surrender in the name of the Australian Revolution. Paddy rushed him and Jack stabbed him repeatedly with the bayonet. As he died, Paddy had said, Oh Jack, you villain. Jack then set about mutilating his third victim. Jack's plan after that, he said, was not to kill, but to capture Tim and his sister Mary. He hadn't meant to kill Tim with the axe, only to stun him. When Tim had fought back, Jack had run off, planning at first to return to the farmhouse and capture the brother and sister. Realising this wasn't going to be possible, he made his escape, ditching the Scottish rifle's uniform and changing into clothes from his swag. He'd gone to the river and grabbed a boat, that's when the O'Keefe's dog had reappeared and he'd taken it with him in the hope it'd watch over him when he slept. Together, they crossed the river. Then, Jack set the boat adrift and started north. He told the examiner, quote, I travelled all night. I ran very little but walked fast. During Sunday night, I had a terrible time in a swamp for three or four hours. The water was nearly up to my waist and I fell down 13 or 14 times. It was very dark and I could not see. He continued, all the time, I kept on plugging away and doing my best to miss all the houses and people. Jack did stop at a camp to buy boots, a hat, a blanket and some flour, which he cooked into damper. Then, visiting that other farmer, he knocked back the job as a cook because, quote, It wasn't in my line just then. I knew the police were not far behind. As it turned out, Sergeant Kane was ahead and Jack's luck ran out at Dunbible. That's when he first began talking about his White Australia revolution. Was it all a fantasy? Here's what the local Examiner newspaper had to say. Quote, The story of the secret society will be well sifted by the police. Brown's associates are well known as very respectable lads. He says that some of those pledged to the society are of the best families in the district. His story appears incredible, but... It is quite probable that a set of lads would indulge in heroics about revolution and get a lot of fun out of fanciful pictures of its progress. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to part two of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Deadwood Dick Murders. The final instalment will be released tomorrow. If you've got a moment between now and then, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For more stories from Australia's fascinating history, check out my other show, Australia On This Day. Forgotten Australia and Australia On This Day are produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.